2006, the United States Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act, which, among other things, allowed for the President to declare martial law, take command of National Guard units without state governor consent, and use military force to address domestic disturbance, acts of terrorism, insurrection, and civil unrest. The drastic expansion of powers this handed to a president of the U.S. did not go unnoticed, and in 2008 the act was revised in an attempt to rein in the potential abuse of such broad powers. Even with revision, the National Security and Homeland Security Presidential Directive, more commonly known as Executive Directive 51, has not been rescinded. With it, the approach to maintaining a functioning federal government, known under the term continuity of government, in the event of catastrophic social unrest, civil breakdown, and outside attack or disaster, was centralized and militarized. With all this, the specter of martial law has since permeated the public consciousness, and since that time, the fear and accusations of tyrannical intent and potential martial law have followed each successive administration. As of this recording, just a couple weeks ago, the current president, Donald Trump, along with the first lady and a cadre of staff and ranking personnel, tested positive for COVID-19. Because of media focus on discussions of presidential succession plans and impacts to election debate schedules, the real question was not given attention. What happens if a substantial portion of government infrastructure becomes unable to function, and if the public can be convinced to accept that their way of life is in jeopardy, would they be willing to concede their personal freedoms and liberties to a presumptively temporary martial structure of government to protect the future? This time, as we begin our series titled Bones of Tyranny, we address the continuity of government contingency operations. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Okay, welcome back, theoryologists. It has been some time since our last discussion, at least for me. For some of you, you may have just discovered the podcast based on the interest I've seen in the last episode on moral panic and social control theory. It's hard to believe that that came out uh, all the way back in July. And if you are new to conspiracy theoryology, then Welcome, and I am very grateful that you are here. Now, since it has been a while, some housekeeping is in order 
before beginning our discussion. Let's start with talking about current events and the podcast. Uh, one of the things that we have never really done on the show much was address current event topics that were really just hot, debatable political issues uh, or politicized issues and chose to explore things that really have lasted a long time or really permeated the public consciousness, you know, as, as the intro says. Uh, but uh, 2020, of course, has been a strange year and, you know, from the very beginnings of, of wanting to take the opportunity of a an epidemic breakout in overseas in China and explore the long-standing ideas and alternative theories around the Spanish flu and that strange unfolding of history there um, ended up running parallel with exactly what was going on, this, this blossoming pandemic scenario that seemed to be spreading across the globe. Uh, along with all of the ideas and the conspiracy and the expansion of all of that and and everything that happened and some of the strange uh, political responses and, and governmental responses to all of this. Uh, so what ended up happening is that, geez, uh, current events could not be avoided because, frankly, they were weirder than anything we could really talk about. Um, so... You know, it's just something I felt needed to be addressed, and we did it, and we addressed some of these things that were going on, uh, especially in light of lockdowns and face mask requirements, and, and I wanted to explore those subjects because there was a, a lot of uh, psychological aspects that I, I discovered were were worth mentioning. Uh, but after that, it was like I decided I needed to take a step back uh, because it was, it was just getting... It was getting stressful for me, researching it all and thinking about it while everybody was just trying to to survive. And um, it just uh, it just seemed unfair to try and jump in and, and beat on this uh, dead horse too much. Um, but but, you know, that said, um, it was time to come back. And I wanted to find a topic that was worth discussing that seemed applicable at the time. Uh, absolutely we are going to return to the litany of other topics, everything from the esoteric to the paranormal uh, to the extraterrestrial and even historically conspiratorial. Uh, there's a wealth of stuff left to talk about, but this is an election year. This is an election season, and this has been one of the strangest years in recent history, and we needed to address it. So, this series on Bones of Tyranny are going to discuss a bit of this infrastructure that has blossomed and is in place for concern to flourish uh, with the public, within the public consciousness. Okay, so let's do that. Another big piece to talk about is Patreon and the cancellation of the patron page on Patreon for conspiracy theoryology. Uh, now, Patreon, of course, is a is a, a source of support and patronage that a lot of podcasts use. So everything that I'm about to tell you, do not let that dissuade you from supporting 
the podcasts that you're supporting on Patreon, I don't want to damage um, any of them, especially with their livelihood or their means of, of helping to support their shows. Uh, but I made the decision for us to just step away from Patreon. Uh, if you don't know, Patreon got into a bit of a legal heat uh, over the past year. And I believe it started the end of last year. Essentially, Patreon decided that they were going to uh, completely close an account of of a podcaster and online personality that had some controversial perspectives, is how I'm going to put it. I mean, and um, and so Patreon just shut the page down. Well, uh, the huge number of supporters that were funding this patron page for uh for this this individual this podcaster um they they turned around and uh decided to try to sue patreon because they is this breach i mean they just completely lost their support right it's up to them the idea with patreon or anything like that is that you're uh i guess talking with your wallet if you support something, you support it financially. And if you don't want to support it, then you don't. And if enough people don't support something, then it, it falls on its own lack of merit, um, is the assumption, uh, unless a platform decides that it needs to take a position. So anyway, so Patreon decided to pull the show and the people, uh, uh countersued. Well, the terms of service uh apparently currently don't allow for that. Uh you know, it's it's an arbitration scenario and Patre- uh, Patreon decided they were going to countersue. So, this is what got me is that Patreon decided to take the to turn around and attack the customers, the supporters that that podcasters that we have asked to come to this platform and support us suddenly get ca- uh, slapped with a lawsuit from the platform because it doesn't want to carry a show that they want to support. Um, well, there was plenty there. Plenty of people thought, "Great, well, all these these wackos are going to just be shut down and and they'll be done." And then Patre- uh, Patreon can continue to go through and be free to censor whomever they want. Except they lost the suit. Uh, <laughs> well, specifically, they lost the uh, ability to countersue. That was struck down. They can't do that. Their terms of service changed, uh, were changed after a certain point. It was not in there. The group that had uh, uh, sued Patreon to address the issue were in their rights to do so. Um, this could be damaging for Patreon in the long run. I don't know. Uh, a lot of people use that platform. Um, it was mildly successful for us. But honestly, the fact that now, because we cover topics that can be considered um, uh, controversial, even if we don't address them in a controversial manner, uh, the fact that that means that anybody that that chose to support uh, this show uh, financially could be at risk for litigation or that Patreon would feel that that was the best way to handle uh, supporters. I just It just rubbed me the wrong way and I decided I was done with it. They're part of the problem and not the solution. 
Um, so walked away. Uh, let I let the supporters that currently on Patreon know they had time uh, to you know absorb as much of the material, and then and then we canceled the page and it was done. I currently don't have anything else set up for financial support of the show. Um, so it, absolutely, if you're listening and you've got some ideas, uh, some ways that you have enjoyed doing it or thoughts, uh, let me know. I don't want to just start throwing things out there. There's so many ways of doing, you know, the buy a coffee thing or just a PayPal, um, single click support. I know these shows are different, so you may like one show a lot and not another one. Um, and maybe that's the way I need to do it. Um, but the, the patron platform, uh, while those platforms are um, deciding that they're going to control what content is on or not on, uh, that that's <laughs> that's precisely the sort of thing that feeds a conspiracy theorist to stay away from it. But again, that's my personal experience with it. That's the show's thoughts on it, uh, and that just affects us. I do not want it to to deter anyone from supporting their other favorite podcasts on Patreon uh, until other options are out there and readily available. Uh, Patreon is, is just going to be one of the biggest, uh, biggest platforms. Um, okay. I think that's it as far as housekeeping. So we're going to get into this. Uh, this is actually a long discussion. I have a very long outline sitting in front of me. And uh, that's why this turned into a series is that we needed to break it up a bit and try to make it digestible. Uh, but um, I'm, I've got a uh, nice warm cup of uh, decaf on in front of me. So settle in and let's get to this. Okay, as we start this discussion, one of the first things I wanted to do, as we've done many times in the past, is establish some vocabulary by establishing some common definitions that we're going to use or have in mind throughout our discussion. Uh, and so two terms that I wanted to, to define for the purpose of our discussion, martial law and tyranny. Uh, the reason it's important to address these is that, well, tyranny is tossed around left and right these days, right? Every Everybody uh, in politics that, that you disagree with or the, the heavy-handed grocery store owner to uh, <laughs> disagreements with teachers or disagreements with anybody, everybody's a tyrannical dictator these days, right? The boss that... that just doesn't cut any, you any slack. Uh, but what does that really mean to think of tyranny? Additionally, martial law has this aura about it. It's spooky and it's scary. And in part because the Western world does not live in any f real common form of uh, martial law, at least not that we know of on the surface, uh, that, that police state that, that can surface, that exists in some places that we certainly have a sense of. Um, and some of these m movements are out there, right? The, the anti-fascist thing and, and 
uh, some of these other groups that that are fighting these systems. They're fighting uh, heavy-handed uh, organizations or heavy-handed responses to civil unrest and such, um, such that it is, um, and and it means something drastically different in other countries. So, all that said, let's define these. First, defining martial law. And really, this is just from Wikipedia. That way we all have an even platform to use. Martial law is definition one, the imposition of direct military control of normal civil functions or suspension of civil law by a government, especially in response to a temporary emergency where civil forces are overwhelmed or in an occupied territory. And two, typically the imposition of martial law accompanies curfews, the suspension of civil law, civil rights, and habeas corpus, and the application or extension of military law or military justice to civilians. Civilians defying martial law may be subject to military tribunal, i.e. court-martial. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. We are talking about martial law, a militarized government in a situation where uh, your normal civil functions and civic functions have broken down and the idea is that the you have military control, direct military control, uh, that uh, is is supersedes everything, and so therefore, civil rights, civil law, habeas corpus, and uh, that those all go out the window, and they're replaced with a military court. Now, let's define tyranny. First, the implementation of absolute rule marks tyranny, unrestrained by law. And you hear that again, the implementation of absolute rule that is unrestrained by law, usually enforced through cruel and oppressive means. I think that's in line with what most people think of when they think of tyranny. While tyranny can be exhibited in several forms, such as tyranny of a minority, which is known as an oligarchy, or tyranny of a majority, which Pure democracy without constitutional protection of rights is actually a tyrannical majority. Uh, the common usage is usually referring to tyranny of one in the forms of an authoritarian dictatorial regime, which is an autocracy. Okay, so tyranny is absolute rule, unrestrained by law. It Whatever the ruling body says goes, it is law. And, uh, and that can change with a whim. Uh, and when we think of it, we're thinking of those, those tyrannical forms in the form of, a, of, of often of one, that authoritarian government, that dictatorial regime. Uh, and that's obviously politically how it's used uh, today in, in most of our when we see it on the news, political advertising and stuff like that, um, in, in groups that are positioning or jockeying themselves in that form. Okay, so that's the terms. The terms are out of the way. But let's get to the actual conspiracy theory that we're talking about and how we're going to make this discussion uh, framed around it. Well, it has become a common election year narrative in the United States 
specifically with the three most recent presidential administrations. The belief is that the newly elected candidate is basically a tyrant in waiting, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Martial law will inevitably be imposed and the rule of law thrown out the window along with the protections of personal rights and civil liberties. I mean, you can hear it just from this list of headlines after a search for each of the last three presidents. So in each of them, I hopped on, did a, did a web search with these terms. First, Bush and martial law. I found the headline, Bush moves toward martial law. Then with Obama and martial law. Obama's six-part plan to declare martial law in America. And of course, Trump and martial law. With the headline, what happens if Trump declares martial law? <laughs> so, quick disclaimer here. Now that you've heard that, this will be a decidedly U.S.-centric discussion of military action within borders and that possibility. And I hope that my non-U.S. listeners, please forgive me for not addressing martial law and continuity of government operations internationally. Just sticking to the U.S. was heavy enough of a research task uh, that I would do the discussion in justice by making it more broad. Uh, if, if you are a non-U.S. listener and have some insight in regards to the following in your own country, feel free to reach out to me and maybe we can address it in a future episode. Additionally, I want everyone to approach this with a nonpartisan view as much as possible, understanding again that this is an election season. If you are listening to this, you know, at the time of, of release, um, but even if only for that moment, as you will see, there is no party divide that protects the public from potential overreach of those in power. And if you think there is, just just listen in and follow along. Because as the headlines I've just read to you have indicated, every administration has shown action that has led to concerns of martial law, regardless of party, regardless of the individual or the administration makeup. Okay, with that disclaimer out of the way, this all started with an article that appeared in Newsweek magazine earlier in the year. The headline read, Exclusive inside the military's top secret plans if coronavirus cripples the government. The article was published way back in March, March 18th of 2020, and includes the implication of direct military control of normal civ uh, civilian and civil functions or the suspension of civil law by a government, especially in response to a temporary emergency where civil forces are overwhelmed. I came across this early on, back during uh, our pandemic panic series that we talked about, but I put it away to consider the ramifications. Now, of course, back in March, the idea of a pandemic was really only just beginning. Uh, well, that's not fair to say the, I, the, the threat was there in January, but the uh, the the idea that the pandemic was was moving into a true global spread was just beginning i mean it was a novelty to much of the public covid had 
only recently been named, and no one knew what a coronavirus, with air quotes, actually was. China had locked down Wuhan, cases started climbing in Italy, and the U.S. was about to reach a thousand deaths attributed to this new disease. This novel disease. Oh yes, and the experts were already projecting mortality rates comparable to the Spanish flu, which, if you uh, remember from the Spanish flu series, we discovered are way overstated. So please go back and listen to the previously mentioned Pandemic Panic series. The world was beginning to run out of toilet paper, travel bans were sprouting up, and every medical and scientific advisor in the U.S. government was saying that face masks were unnecessary and ineffective. Okay, now that we have placed ourselves correctly back in time, centuries ago even, back at the beginning of 2020, let's review the article. I'll jump in with additional information, largely to better define certain references that seem to be given as understood uh, of the reader by the author, but if I felt the need to look it up for more information, I assume you might want that info as well. A fair warning, this article was chalked full of info, which we will be discussing or at least mentioning. If I throw out terms or facts that you want to explore more, use all the links down in the show notes uh, for your own in-depth research. If not, sit back, enjoy the discussion, and don't worry about the details. Now, the byline is William M. Arkin, and he is a contributing writer to Newsweek. He's also attributed as author of a half dozen books, including the title American Coup, How a Terrified Government is Destroying the Constitution. Now, it is clear that this topic of the article is well within his wheelhouse. The article begins by shaping the current situation and positing a scenario that seemed all too possible back in March of 2020. I'll read the first three paragraphs because it sets the stage for the discussion very well. Quote, even as President Trump says he tested negative for coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic raises the fear that huge swaths of the executive branch or even Congress and the Supreme Court could also be disabled, forcing the implementation of continuity of government plans that include evacuating Washington and devolving leadership to second-tier officials in remote and quarantined locations. But coronavirus is also new territory where the military itself is vulnerable and the disaster scenarios being contemplated, including the possibility of widespread domestic violence as a result of food shortages, are forcing planners to look at what are called extraordinary circumstances. And the last paragraph here for this segment, above top secret contingency plans already exist for what the military is supposed to do if all the constitutional successors are incapacitated. Standby orders were issued more than three weeks ago to ready these plans, not just to protect Washington, but also to prepare for the possibility of some form of martial law. End quote. All right, if you didn't already think this article was going to be a page-turner, I'm sure it has caught your attention now. 
Following this captivating lead, the details of these above top secret contingency plans begin to unfold. See, first mentioned are three plans defining the underground laws to ensure government continuity. They are unhelpfully titled Octagon, Free Jack, and Zodiac. Interestingly, this is really all that is provided regarding detail in these three plans, other than a mention later in the article that are uh, are intended to provide the mechanism for various military units to defend government operations in key locations. Now, I tried sleuthing for additional information on these three plans, but as I suspected, if the author, Arkin, uh, had been unable to unearth additional information, there was probably nothing I could find given my limited resources. And by resources, I mean a laptop connected to the internet. It's odd that they exist in name only, but they do seem to exist. I could find reference to them, but not much else. And I think we will see why as we proceed. The article goes on to explain that the U.S. finds itself in new territory when facing a threat of pandemic. And I think you can also read that as the international community as a whole. And I am want to believe that it is in this context, considering that the pandemic may have been effectively a global bioterrorism scenario. It asks the question, what happens if so many members of Congress come down with the coronavirus that the legislature cannot meet or cannot muster a quorum? So apparently in the two decades since 9-11, efforts to address possibilities such as this through a continuity of government commission have been largely ineffective. In fact, most of what makes up continuity planning throughout governmental and federal agencies is still focused around singular events, like a nuclear attack, because that is the origin of continuity of operation planning. The article says, quote, in the past, almost every imagined contingency associated with emergency preparedness has assumed civil and military assistance coming from outside. One military officer involved in continuity planning calls it a cavalry mentality, that military assistance is requested or ordered after local civil authority has been exhausted. There might not be an outside, the officer says, asking that she not be named because she is speaking about sensitive matters. End quote. Okay, some of you may remember that early on in March, news reports surfaced that the Pentagon had implemented extreme restrictions on travel for military personnel. Well, this is why. Suddenly, the backup plan for government was under the same threat. I mean, it was crazy to consider, really. Anyone that had been diagnosed as having contracted COVID was not allowed to join the armed forces, even after recovery. I believe that that's been lifted now, but it was a knee-jerk reaction to keep any possibility of exposure to a minimum. No travel was to occur unless deemed mission essential. And these mission essential activities, it fell under three large conceptual plans. And those plans were titled Con Plan, <laughs> conceptual plans, Con Plan 3400, Con Plan 3500, and Con Plan 
3,600. So 3,400, what do these mean? 3,400 or basically the military's plan for homeland defense if America itself is a battlefield, right? And then Con Plan 3,500, uh, as, as by the way, Arkin has defined all of these in the Newsweek article uh, and provided this information. Con Plan 3,500 is the defense support of civil authorities, basically where the military assists in an emergency short of armed attack on the nation. And Con Plan 3600 is military operations in the national capital region and continuation of government, under which the most secret plans to support continuity are nested. The article then informs us that all these conceptual plans for operational contingency are the responsibility of U.S. NORTHCOM, uh, U.S. Northern Command, led by Air Force General Terrence J. O'Shaughnessy, based in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Arkin, in the article, leaves us with this short list of the con plan scenarios, but I've also linked in the show notes a more in-depth explanation of these and many more conceptual plans that Arkin published back in April of 2020, um, earlier this year. So, so following this article, I hunted down, and as I said, he's the right man for the subject, and he expanded on it. So shortly after the Newsweek article uh, at the website FAS.org, which is the online journal for the Federation of American Scientists. So if you're interested in reading up on that, I recommend following the link. I found it very, very informative. Okay, continuing on. Now that we've been informed of this planning infrastructure and the responsibility for execution lying with NORTHCOM, we get to current day and current events. So, the article goes on, quote, On February 1, Defense Secretary Mark T. Esper signed orders directing NORTHCOM to execute nationwide pandemic plans. Secretly, he signed warning orders, the Warnord, as it's called, alerting NORTHCOM and a host of East Coast units to prepare to deploy in support of potential extraordinary missions. Seven secret plans, some highly compartmented, exist to prepare for these extraordinary missions. There are transportation-related, just to move and support the White House and the federal government as it evacuates and operates from alternative sites. Uh, well, let's, let's work through this. First is the rescue and evacuation of the occupants of the executive mansion. Obviously, that's responsible for the transportation and relocation of the president, the VP, and their families. The second plan is titled the Joint Emergency Evacuation Plan, or JEEP, which is responsible for the Secretary of Defense and other national security leaders and their evacuation from Washington, D.C. Third is the Atlas Plan. That addresses non-military, such as congressional leadership, the uh, Supreme Court of the U.S., and other key civilian figures. It is in this plan uh, that the use of the secret congressional bunkers would come into play. And we'll talk about more of those in a future episode uh, within this series. 
Now, four through six are the previously mentioned secret squirrel plans, Octagon, Freejack, and Zodiac. And as we said, they involve various military units providing defense of key government operational locations along the East Coast. So essentially just holding the high ground at key strategic locations, whatever those are, but of presumably for government to operate and function. It's the number seven that's the most interesting, though. In this article, Arkin informs us of a plan codenamed Granite Shadow. And that becomes a centerpiece in this article's discussion. Um, and the plan provides the playbook. That's a lot of P's. I hope that didn't pop in your ears. The plan provides the playbook for extraordinary domestic missions and operation when faced with weapons of mass destruction. So, now let's be honest what that means. That's martial law. Arkin tells us in the article that he explored and reported on Granite Shadow way back in 2005. So before moving on, let's just check out what exactly this top secret plan is and what it means by extraordinary domestic missions. Now, from the globalresearch.org and the Center for Research on Globalization, the author of this article, William Arkin, published an article on Granite Shadow on September 25th, 2005. For reference, it was originally published in the Washington Post. And of course, the link is in the show notes. Here are some excerpts from that. First, Granite Shadow is yet another new top secret and compartmented operation related to the military's extra-legal powers regarding weapons of mass destruction. It allows for emergency military operations in the United States without civilian supervision or control. And then in another section in which Arkin surmises what the program might actually be, he says, quote, That classified plan, I believe, after extensive research and after making a couple of assumptions, is Conplan 0400, formerly titled Counter-Proliferation of Weapons of Mass Destruction. Conplan 0400 is a long-standing contingency plan on the, of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CJCS, that serves as the umbrella for military efforts to counter the spread of weapons of mass destruction. It has extensively been updated and revised since 9-11. The CJCS plan out, lays out national policy and priorities for dealing with weapons of mass destruction threats in peacetime and crisis, from faraway offensive strikes and special operations against foreign WMD infrastructure and capabilities to missile defenses and consequence management at home if offensive efforts fail. End quote. Okay, so that really tells us that Granite Shadow is intended to deal with a really bad situation when all other contingencies fail. It's a worst-case scenario contingency that obviously can get dicey. I mean, how far is too far? What lines have to be crossed, and how does this look like martial law? Okay, the last excerpt from that um, uh, globalresearch.org article uh, is this. 
Um, all of the military planning incorporates the technical capabilities of the intelligence agencies and non-military organizations, such as the National Laboratories of the Department of Energy. And finally, ConPlan 0400 directs regional combatant commanders to customize counter-proliferation plans for each of their own areas of operation. Now, when that area of operation is the United States, things become particularly sensitive. Um, <laughs> okay, back to the excerpt. That's where Granite Shadow comes in. U.S. Northern Command, NORTHCOM, the military's new Homeland Security Command, is preparing its draft version of COD Plan 0400 for military operations in the United States, and the resulting Granite Shadow Plan has been classified above top secret by adding a special category, Compartment Restricting Access. This, uh, the sensitivities, according to military sources, include deployment of special mission units, the so-called Delta Force, SEAL teams, Rangers, and other special units of Joint Special Operations Command in Washington, D.C., and other domestic hotspots. NORTHCOM has worked closely with the U.S. Special Operations Command, SOCOM, as well as the secret branches of non-military agencies and departments to enforce unity of command over any post-9-11 efforts. Further, Granite Shadow posits domestic military operations, including intelligence collection and surveillance, unique rules of engagement regarding the use of lethal force, the use of experimental non-lethal weapons, and federal and military control of incident locations that are highly controversial and might border on the illegal. End quote. <laughs> yes, as we correctly interpreted, Granite Shadow walks a fine line between protecting and maintaining governmental operations. And all out of Pretty much an all-out military takeover. It's serious business. Now, we read SOCOM involvement, which listeners of this show will find familiar. SOCOM was a central player in our discussion of Jade Helm 15 and the PSYOP exercise that caused public panic and its own conspiracy theories. Now, learning about Granite Shadow... It could put an, uh, exercises like Jade Helm in another light, perhaps as a training mission to predict and anticipate public response to a martial law event. Perhaps that conspiracy theory and those that formed around Jade Helm 15 weren't so off the mark after all. Okay, we've been here a while, so let's take a quick pause point. And when we get back, let's return to the Newsweek article uh, now that we're aware of the extent to which Granite Shadow allows for those highly controversial federal and military controls.
Okay, let's jump back into the Newsweek article with this excerpt. Arkin brings up another question. Quote, when might the military's emergency authority be needed? Traditionally, it's thought of after a nuclear device goes off in an American city. But now, planners are looking at military response to urban violence as people seek protection and fight over food. And according to one senior officer, in the contingency of the complete evacuation of Washington. Under Defense Department regulations, military commanders are authorized to take action on their own in extraordinary circumstances where duly constituted local authorities are unable to control the situation. The conditions include large-scale unexpected civil disturbances involving significant loss of life or wanton destruction of property. The Joint Chiefs of Staff codified these rules in October 2018, reminding commanders that they could decide on their own authority to engage temporarily in military control in circumstances where prior authorization by the president is impossible or where local authorities are unable to control the situation. A new Trump-era Pentagon directive calls it extreme situations. In all cases, even where a military commander declares martial law, the directives say that civil rule has to be restored as soon as possible. In scenarios where one city or one region is devastated, that's a pretty straightforward process, the military planner told Arkin. But with coronavirus, where the effect is nationwide, we're in territory we've never been in before. End quote. Okay, that was a long passage. So let's break that down into some key takeaways, because there's a lot of key takeaways uh, in order to really understand the intent, at least superficially, of this structured plan for martial law. First, the event is localized and severe, i.e. nuclear attack um, or 9-11 style terrorist attack in a major metropolitan area. So, you know, it's always either nuclear or terrorism is, is the mindset of that structure. Two, military command under extraordinary circumstances, which are defined with three broad stroke parameters. Local authority unable to control the situation. Large scale uh, civil disturbances follows that. And finally, significant loss of life or want destruction of property. Um, so those are quote unquote extraordinary circumstances that allow for these broad parameters. Uh, third takeaway, these current parameters and specific definitions are new, very new from October of 2018. Fourth takeaway, and almost as a caveat to try to put the genie back in the bottle, the directives say that civil rule has to be restored as soon as possible. As a tail end idea. Oh, wait a second. We've, we've just thrown everything out the window here. This has to be wrapped up and fixed up as soon as possible. And finally, the fifth and probably the most important part, we are in territory never before seen, meaning these plans are for localized breakdown caused by some sort of strategic attack, not 
large-scale social breakdown caused by an uncontrolled bioweapon or contagion. So now we've been introduced to this infrastructure of continuity of government contingencies, including the plans and operations meant to be executed in the event of some catastrophic social breakdown. Some of them just make good sense, while others, like Granite Shadow, certainly raise the specter of possible abuse in its implementation of martial law. The entire thing presents such a risk of tyrannical overrun that most of the guidance around the implementation of continuity plans address the onerous levels of approval for use and defined points of termination. I mean, it's clear that the risk is so readily apparent, even with ardent proponents of this stuff, that every effort to mitigate abuse of power is being made. Uh, will that actually mitigate the risk? I don't know. In trying to think of an analogy, I, I came up with the example of installing an in-ground swimming pool in the backyard. Now, stay with me here. If you have small children, you want to do everything to make the pool available when you need it, but you want to protect any child from drowning. So to that extent, you could put a pool cover over it, surround it with an iron fence, lock the gate, and establish well-defined rules for use. Basically, everything short of just draining the pool and filling it back in with dirt. And chances are you've covered all your bases. But in reality, if someone wants to get into the pool and violate the rules, it can be done. That risk cannot leave your mind. Ever. And that's what's important here. There is a risk. Continuity of operations in government seems like a necessary evil. We want to know that our governmental infrastructure can survive a major event that might otherwise break down irreparably our society. Still, the means considered necessary in order to maintain control during that gap between breakdown and restoration does sound extreme and ominous. But has this always been the case? I mean, have we always had this risk of martial law at our doorstep? of civilian government supplanted when necessary by a militarized and theoretically short-term authoritarian infrastructure? Well, the short answer is no, at least not in the U.S. And let's finish out the Newsweek article in order to see when this threat entered into the public consciousness and, in the process, get some history of this contingency of government contingency plan thing anyway that we've been talking about so much without defining. Arkin, in this kind of final few paragraphs um, of the article in this section, says this, quote, Continuity of government and protection of the presidency began in the Eisenhower administration, with the possibility emerging that Washington could be obliterated in the atomic attack. Let me jump in here. That's the Eisenhower administration, so that's the 1950s. The need to plan for a nuclear decision maker to survive even a direct attack led to the building of bunkers and a maze of secret procedures and exceptions, many of which are still followed to this day. Congress was also folded in, at least congressional leadership, to ensure that there would always be 
a constitutional successor, and then the Supreme Court was added later. Continuing on, Markin says, Before 9-11, continuity and emergency programs were broadened beyond nuclear war preparedness, particularly as hurricanes began to have such devastating effects on modern urban society, and because of the advent of pandemics, broadly beginning with the avian influenza, civil agencies responsible for national security, such as the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the lead agency to respond to coronavirus, were also brought into continuity protection. And there's a few more paragraphs I want, to, I want you to really hear Arkin really drives in on this. Okay, so continuing on. Despite well-honed plans and constant testing over 30 years, the attacks of September 11, 2001, severely tested all aspects of continuity movement at communications. Many of the procedures written down on paper were either ignored or thrown out the window. As a result, continuity had a second coming. Billions spent by the new Department of Homeland and the other national security agencies to ensure uh, that the Washington leadership could communicate and move. A whole new system established to be ready if a terrorist attack came without warning. Bunkers, many shuttered at the end of the Cold War, were reopened and expanded, befitting the panic at the time. And the atomic legacy, the most extraordinary planning scenario, posited a terrorist attack that would involve an improvised nuclear or radiological dispersal device in a major American city. The terrorist attack scenario dominated until 2006 when the disastrous government response to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans shifted federal government preparedness to formally adopt an all-hazards system. Civil agencies, the 50 states, and local communities, particularly large cities, all began to synchronize emergency preparedness with common protocols. U.S. Northern Command was created to harness military assistance in domestic disasters. Its three overarching contingency plans, the product now of 15 years of trial and error. Whew, okay, that's a lot that... Let me give you there. I know you're thinking right there, but let me let me read this one one little paragraph, one more paragraph. Government at all levels now have extensive continuity programs to respond to man-made and natural disasters, a national response framework that has steadily grown and taken hold. This is the public world of emergency response, ranging from life-saving efforts to protect and restore critical infrastructure to drills that practice the evacuation of key officials. It is a partnership created between federal government agencies and the states, carefully constructed to guard the rule of law. <laughs> That's a lot. I needed to get all of that there again. We're just tons of information packed in this article. So before the final excerpt, let's jump in here, digest what we've read, and discuss how this has changed things. Let's make a list. One, continuity of government as we know it today in the U.S. was born out of the Cold War during the Eisenhower administration. And I suspect that this is the case with many free and democratic states around the globe. 
The Cold War shaped our current geopolitical climate heavily. Two, before this, continuity plans and discretion in declaring martial law was largely held by individual states, at least in the U.S. Three, with an emergency response infrastructure in place, other events such as natural disasters and the threat of pandemic were folded into the scope of response. Hey, we've got a contingency plan. Let's apply this contingency plan to anything. Four, the events of 9-11. However controlled or manipulated they may have been, expanded contingency of government contingencies, uh, sorry, continuity of government contingencies, and turned focus toward terrorist threat, creating a, quote, all hazards system a unified, cohesive response throughout all 50 states and the federal government became the goal. While not expressly stated, that certainly involves coordination with allied foreign governments and international entities. I mean, how could it not? And five, this is the turning point. Key note here, this is the turning point. The 2006 expansion of Homeland Security power and the creation of of NORTHCOM. Emergency response becomes federally militarized and fully centralized. This is when it happened. And that's the key. The centralization and militarization of all aspects of continuity of government response plans throughout the whole of the U.S. intrinsically changed the dynamic of contingency emergency planning. Washington, D.C. no longer was concerned only with Washington, D.C. The relocation and protection of the president and sustainment of the succession plan in place for leadership. No. Now, there is an entire military command capable of executing wide-ranging protocols for response. This isn't up to the individual state governments anymore. And it doesn't end there. Okay. The final long excerpt. I know I've been saying last excerpt, but this is a final excerpt from Newsweek and from this article that is so good. I invite you to go and read it um, in its entirety. Let's, I'll go through it. It's just three paragraphs. It'll be fine. Okay, quote, in July 2016, Barack Obama signed the Classified Presidential Policy Directive 40 on National Continuity Policy, establishing essential functions that government agencies were tasked to protect and retain. At the highest level were the national essential functions, those that posit the continued functioning of government under the Constitution. In order to preserve constitutional rule, agencies were ordered to have just a line uh, of succession but also one of devolution, a duplicate chain of individuals secreted outside Washington available in a catastrophic emergency. Federal Continuity Directive 1, issued just days before Donald Trump became president, says that devolution has to establish procedures to transfer statutory authority and responsibilities to this secondary designated staff to sustain essential functions. 
Devolution may be temporary or may endure for an extended period, the directive states, and it further directs that the devolution staff be located at a geographically dispersed location unaffected by the incident, except that in the case of coronavirus, there may be no such location. This places the plans for the extraordinary into completely uncharted territory. Planners, not just considering how devolution or martial law might work in a nationwide disaster, but also how those earmarked to implement these very plans have to be sequestered and made ready even while they are equally vulnerable. Northcom stresses in almost everything it produces for public consumption that it operates only in support of civil authorities in response to state requests for assistance or with the consent of local authorities. Legally, the command says, the use of federal military forces in law enforcement can only take place if those forces are used to suppress insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful uh, combination, or conspiracy. A second test also has to be met that such disturbances hinders the execution of the laws of the state and of the United States within the state. That is, that the public is deprived of its legal and constitutional protections. Local civil authorities must be unable, fail, or refuse to protect the civilian population for military forces to be called in, Pentagon directives make clear. Oh, man. That... That says a lot. Now, we have been at this a while, and I wanted to get us into discussion of, of martial law more, right? This history of martial law in the U.S., since we have seen this turning point, and again reiterating what it means when things changed in 2006 to get an idea of how things looked before and how they look after. And really, now, what martial law looks like in new forms. And we can toss out some of the terms, right? We've heard them. You've heard them all. Lockdown, quarantine, curfews, National Guard deployments, and, you know, their application during storms and pandemics. I also want to have a discussion on some of these protections that are in place <laughs> constitutionally or legally that are supposed to minimize, mitigate the risk for these. Things like the Insurrection Act. Habeas corpus and uh, posse comitatus. Uh, you know, these are protections, and then there's ways to get around them. And then I want to look at, as we move, you know, as, as, as we look at this series, what this could mean. And this is where we have to have a discussion of that idea of shadow government and you know, that deep state mindset, that long game mindset. Because this has been a slow burn that has been in place since the 1950s. And then really, I want to just address what it means for the public. What the means are for martial law to be implemented. But, that's a lot to discuss, and we'll discuss that uh, in the next episode. Or, I haven't really figured out yet if we're going to do a part two only or a part two and three just uh work with me on here and we'll see where we go i'll let you know at the next episode there's just 
so much information. And I know at times some of these episodes I just throw out tons of stuff because I want to jam-pack it all in because it's been so much fun to research it and I'm shoving all these notes together. I'm like, look at all this. I got tons of pages. This is great. And then I lose you. And you too many listeners disappear three-quarters of the way through because their brains are full. And mine was full, and that's why I've been regurgitating all this information. Well, I'm trying to not do that <laughs> with this discussion because it's a lot. And it's a serious topic, and it's weighty, and it's already making you think about what you're already thinking about here, which is these U.S. elections and everything that's going on, the coronavirus, and then we're getting to the fall, and so then there's this new quarantine that people are talking about. It's just all crazy. I'm not here to stress you out more, and we don't want to do that. So we're going to stop here and save the rest of it for later. So to wrap this part of the discussion up, I'm going to give William Arkin the last word because he's been the feature piece um, of this episode, and I've borrowed so heavily from his article. Thank you, Mr. Arkin. By the way, I believe he sums it up quite nicely with his last little closing paragraph in the article. Quote, The plans state that the government continues essential functions under all circumstances, even if that is with the devolved second string or under temporary military command. One of the national essential functions, according to Federal Continuity Directive 1 is that the government provide leadership visible to the nation and the world while maintaining the trust and confidence of the American people. The question is whether a faceless elite could ever provide that confidence, preserving government command but also adding to public panic. That could be a virus too. End quote. Okay, next time, we're also going to talk about everything that we just addressed above. Plus, we may even get into FEMA, death camps, and the history of the Federal Emergency Management Agency because that plays a role in the history of this continuity of government. As well, we will hopefully wrap up this discussion, as I mentioned a moment ago, by addressing the past protections in place to mitigate the influence and use of martial law during these contingency responses and hopefully figure out what this means for the public. What stage has been set and is there a more nefarious long game being played? Are the means for martial law long-term established authoritarian martial law being set in place? Okay, that is all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for waiting patiently as we moved through, got through the summer and into this fall, and I finally got back into the groove and got this episode going. Um, if you've made it all the way to the end of this episode, I love you for it. You've We've come back strong and you got all the way through it. And this is just the beginning. So... Please click that follow or subscribe button if you have just happened onto this episode and this is your first one so that you don't miss the discussion. Connect with me via email. Contact at conspiracytheoryology.com. 
Join the Facebook group. Find me on Twitter, at TheoryologyPod. Or just recommend the show to others. Right now, that is the single best and only way to support the show. Uh, I know I don't often ask for, you know, reviews and stuff because we all use different apps and I don't know where people rate and review and do all that stuff. But if you can, just your help in making the show more visible and sharing like crazy. That is the best way to support the show. I mean, there is no higher compliment than to know that you have shared the show with others. As always, the info can be found at the show website, conspiracytheoryology.com. Music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. Okay, I will see you again next time. So until then, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology. I don't know how many times I messed up in there, but it's a good recording. I hope I have edited out all the coughs. I don't know. We'll see. It's an hour and 20 minutes, but we had some gaps. Some rambling. That's some good coffee. Yeah, that's some good coffee. Oh, that's the voice I should have used. That's, there you go. That's what I should have done. Welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Yep. The government's about to take over the world. Yeah. They're going to throw your uh, freedoms and liberties out the window. This is good coffee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't wear a face mask. Mm-hmm.